American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. Carlos Sanabria of Hostos Community College, City University of New York, discusses Hispanic migration history with emphasis on the causes and outcomes of post-1965 demographic revolutions. This talk took place on April 24, 2009 at Hostos Community College. Arranged for a museum trip today to the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, where I've arranged for an undocumented Dominican immigrant to lead a discussion on the uh, Greeks and Roman art. And uh, I'd like to tell you that story just a little bit because it is relevant to the topic today because he really is an undocumented Dominican immigrant, but a brilliant uh, young man whose story really illustrates one of the predicaments facing America right now in terms of undocumented immigrants from uh, Hispanic America. He's 25 years old, graduated three years ago from Princeton University, number two in his class. He is considered by his uh, professors the most promising classic scholar of his generation. Went on to do an MPhil in Roman history at Oxford University and right now has uh, an offer of a full fellowship to do a PhD at Stanford University in classics. But he's kind of hung up because of his immigration status. He came here as a uh, five or six year old with his parents, his mother, who overstayed her visa. And so he's undocumented. And his siblings who were born here are US citizens, sure. but he's not. And until his status is straightened out, you know, but apparently there were tens of thousands of young uh, immigrants, you know, Hispanics in the country who uh, are in that kind of predicament. And uh, even though Bill Clinton personally interceded on his behalf, because Bill Clinton was the keynote speaker when he graduated from Princeton, but um, the situation is whatever they do for him, you know, is going to set a precedent for tens of thousands of others, you know, these uh, wonderful, you know. I invited him to my Introduction to Humanities class a year ago, and he began the class by reading an excerpt from Homer in Greek, you know, and then engaged him in a conversation of uh, Troy, the movie Troy. You know. This year I invited him, and he did a whole presentation on the Roman conception of time. Anyway, I can begin uh, in terms of identifying for you what my interest has been in Hispanic immigration history and the questions that I have tried to answer. In the period between 1940 and 1960, the size of the Puerto Rican population in New York City increased tenfold, from 60,000 to 600,000. I was part of that half a million people that came from Puerto Rico in that period. Most of them actually came here in the period between about 1948 and 1960. And as a young person coming of age, um, there were two questions that I had. Uh, one of them was, you know, why did we come here? And the other question was, why are we so poor? And of course, the question of why did we come here arose from the few trips that as a child I made back to Puerto Rico. And I went back to Puerto Rico as a child, and I thought, this is wonderful, you know. I remember the, the first time I went back, it was those, those days when the plane lands out in the middle of the airport and they wheel out the 
the stair, right? It was nighttime. And I remember stepping out of the plane, and when I looked up, I thought the sky was going to fall on me. I'd never seen so many stars, you know? I went, whoa. And then, of course, you know, beautiful. The weather's great, the sunshine is great, the beaches, the palm trees swaying in the breeze, you know? And I compared it to life over here, and I said, why, why did we come over here? <laughs> and then, the second question I had, well, why are we so poor, you know? And I knew we were poor because we had a TV, even though we were poor, we had a TV, one of those, you know, black and white numbers with the rabbit ears, with the little dial. And most of the time it was pretty fuzzy and like a blizzard was coming across the screen, you know. But um, we did, we watched TV and we watched these programs, Leave it to Beaver and uh, Ozzy and Harriet and Father Knows Best and Vicki Nelson. And they're having this wonderful time, you know what I mean? They're really laughing it up. I mean, it was situation comedies, you know. And I'm comparing that to my situation single-parent household, you know. My mother was a uh, garment worker. She worked for the International Lady Garments Union. And that's seasonal work. And even in the good times, you might be out of work, you know. So you have your period, periodic stint uh, on welfare, going down to the warehouse, picking up that surplus agricultural department stuff, you know. So those were the questions that I had, you know, coming of age in the mid-60s, late 1960s. And... Um, Anyway, that's my interest in immigration, Hispanic immigration, and those are the questions that I have. And later on, I'll tell you what answers I came up with in terms of those two, two questions. But um, what I thought we would do, um, I have a brief outline, and I'll just give it to you right now. And it's probably more than we have time for, but um, we can pick and choose depending on what particular topics you're interested in that we might discuss. Uh, one item on the... On, on the outline is the demographic revolution since 1960, and that's a reference to the growth, diversification, and dispersal of the Hispanic population in the United States. A second topic that we might discuss is uh, migra particular migration histories, especially um, since the 1960s, uh, Cuban, Dominican, continued Puerto Rican migration, continued Mexican migration. A third topic is the topic of the causes of the migration and uh, the various explanations that have been given. And a uh, fourth topic is migration outcomes in terms of well, what has been the success or shortcomings of the various immigrant groups that have come to, to the United States. So those are the topics that I thought we might address. So we have to begin somewhere. So let me begin, uh, you know, I'm trying to address as many of these as I can. And again, not just myself, but all of us in, in conversation. But maybe talk first of all about this whole issue of the, the causes of the migration. And maybe segue from there on to the issue of uh, the outcomes in terms of situation of Hispanics in the United States. In terms of the causes of the migration, I think, I think there's really like three ways that are often looked at. Uh, one of them is the way people personally articulate their reasons for migrating. One of the key texts on Dominican migration is, called, is a book called Between Two Islands. And of course, the references to the island of Manhattan and the island of Hispaniola. And on the cover, there's a picture of the Dominican family in front of the Brooklyn Bridge, except that the picture was actually taken in Santo Domingo in a studio where they just had a big backdrop of the Brooklyn Bridge. But... Um, in a chapter dealing with the causes of the migration, the authors interview a multi-generational family in New York, the Molina family, 
and they're asked why did they come to the U.S. And the explanation that they give is very personal. So some of them came because of issues of political persecution. This is especially so in the you know, mid to late 1960s, the early 1970s. Some of them came to get a better job. Some of them came to get a job. Some of them came for um, educational opportunities. Uh, some of them came to reunite with a spouse. Uh, older people oftentimes articulate the reason for their coming as, um, you know, they want to be there to provide child care for their kids so that they could go to school or that they could work, you know, so you get the grandparents taking care of the grandchildren, so that uh, those situations. But uh, clearly that's not a sufficient explanation as to why hundreds of thousands of people make this decision to leave. And another explanation which has been referred to as a push-pull model of um, international labor migration argues that basically, and it's also referred to as an equilibrium model, and it basically says that there's a tendency for workers to migrate from areas of high unemployment and low wages to areas of low unemployment and high wages. And as a result, you get uh, you know, in equilibrium. But again, clearly that, you know, is not a sufficient explanation and it really begs the question, well, why in the country of origin are so many people finding themselves in those situations where they need to move in order to, um, you know, get a job or get a better job or, or whatever. And in that regard, what I find to be the most satisfying explanation of the phenomena of international labor migration has to do with longer-term structural changes in economies. And as economies go through a process of transition from traditional agricultural economies, maybe subsistence economies, to uh, commercial economies and beyond that, to uh, manufacturing economies, that those structural economic changes have an impact on the population. And those structural economic changes are contradictory in the sense that they give rise to many positive results, but that they also give rise to many negative results. And among the negative results are the growth of large marginalized populations who don't fit into the new economic structures and for whom migration, either internally from one rural area to another rural area, they might be undergoing a more dynamic process of change or from a rural area to an urban area or from you know their country to to a different country and that I find to be the most uh, satisfactory answer or explanation of the process of um, international labor migration I'd like to give a specific example going back to what I uh, spoke about earlier in terms of my own experience uh, trying to understand the process whereby in the post-world war II period you had this tremendous growth of uh, Puerto Rican population in New York City. Again, from 1940 to 1960, the population increased from s in New York City from 60,000 to 600,000. And was it because all of a sudden, you know, hundreds of thousands of people decided that life was better here? Or, you know, what, what, what was this? And when I began to uh, look into this, the explanation had to do with the fundamental structural economic change that took place in Puerto Rico in the post-World War II period that saw the island go, or the economy of the island go, from basically an agricultural economy to an industrial economy. And the impact that that had on the population. And of course, in what, what happened was that in the wake of the Great Depression of the 1930s, 
government officials, both in Puerto Rico and in the United States, realized that the conditions of poverty that existed on the island, low wages, uh, high unemployment, high underemployment, and all the poverty conditions that accompanied that, had much more to do with the nature of the economy than with the depression itself. That is, that there were some structural weaknesses there, that it wasn't just a matter of, you know, the depression. That the, 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 what the depression did at the 1930s was exacerbate what already were some very dire uh, conditions in Puerto Rico, so that whereas unemployment was high before it went higher, and whereas uh, wages were low, they went lower, and whereas the cost of living had been high, it went higher. And there was a conscious decision made to promote industrialization as a solution to the problems of unemployment, underemployment, low wages in Puerto Rico. And at the same time, the government had a plan for um, land reform because it was recognized that it was, there was a contradiction in an agricultural society where the majority of the population did not have access to land. And there was a contradiction somehow that was recognized very early on in the 20th century where Puerto Rico produced what it didn't consume and consumed what it didn't produce. And um, initially, the idea was to promote agrarian reform so as to make land available to landless rural proletariats and also to promote industrialization. But in practice, only lip service was paid to agrarian reform and the push was for industrialization. The idea being that industrial jobs were better jobs. They were not seasonal, they paid higher, and uh, it was not as arduous as working 12 hours a day cutting sugar cane, for example, right? So the, the whole effort went into promoting jobs in industry. And initially the idea had been a program of import substitution industries. Uh, where the government was going to play a role in promoting these industries with a view towards using local resources and local labor to meet local needs and thereby save money in terms of what was being spent on the international market for bringing in the stuff that was needed uh, and kind of like jumpstart an industrial development program. That failed. And it failed because uh, entrepreneurs in Puerto Rico were opposed to what they saw as um, socialism, state-run and operated industries, because the government opened up a glass and bottle factory, a shoe and leather uh, factory, a cement factory, and a um, paper goods factory, with a view towards demonstrating that this could be done. Uh, and then, of course, the government ran out of money in terms of operating these enterprises. And the government also did not have managerial expertise, right? So the government then kind of switched course and continued with the idea of promoting industrialization, but based on U.S. foreign investments in Puerto Rico. And that was Operation Bootstrap. And within a very short period of time, Puerto Rico went from being an agricultural rural society to being industrial urban society. And a lot of good came out of that. There was an increase in per capita income. There was an increase in a professional middle class. There was an increase in life expectancy and health conditions, uh, improvement in housing conditions for many. But at the same time, there was a tremendous growth in a marginalized population who did not fit into this new economic structure. And more specifically, the government 
uh, prided itself on the success of Operation Bootstrap, on the success of this industrialization program. But um, what it didn't say was that the decrease in the level of unemployment was not a result of a growth in industrial jobs, but the fact that half a million people left between 1940 and 1960. And to the extent that the island, that, the, that the, the government did not follow through on the promise of agrarian reform, as many jobs were lost in agriculture as were gained in industry. So there was no net gain in employment. So that when I sought to answer the question, well, how did this happen that you know, we find ourselves, hundreds of thousands of us are now over here when we should be in Puerto Rico, living it up, right? Um, that to me was a more, much more satisfying answer, and that is looking at the process of Puerto Rican migration within the framework of structural economic change. And that structural economic change was the transition from a primarily agrarian economy to a primarily industrial economy in such a way that did not benefit everybody. When I looked to it, uh, into this further, I saw that in the previous period, a similar structural economic change had led to a large-scale migration from Puerto Rico. Uh, I'll continue with that in a second, but you have a question or comment. Can you give us an idea what the population of Puerto Rico was at that time period, just to gauge what that 600,000 figure means? The, um, you know, I don't know off the top of my head the, the, the actual numbers, um, but I know that at the beginning of the 20th century, the population in Puerto Rico was just under 1 million. Today, the population of Puerto Rico is something like 3.9 million. So that in 1940, my, you know, my guess would be somewhere 2 million or so. It was a substantial number of people. Uh, today, Puerto Rico is one of the very few places, if not the only place, where a larger percentage of the population resides outside the national territory than in the national territory. Um, yes? Um, regarding like Operation Bootstrap and the industrialization process, how did the Puerto Rican government view the migration of its people to the United States? Like, was it a, did, it, did it hurt the process or did it help the process? Okay, they, o officially, the government of Puerto Rico took the position that it neither encouraged nor discouraged migration. That was the official position. However, it did everything possible to encourage the migration because it viewed migration as a safety valve that would buy it time to have the industrialization progress sufficiently to address the problem of high unemployment, underemployment, and low wages. So among the things that the government did was to open up uh, an office of the Migration Division of the Puerto Rican Department of Labor in New York. And they published a pamphlet to orient potential migrants. So again, officially, the position was we neither encourage it nor discourage it. But if you decide you want to go, we want to help you as much as possible have the migration be a success. Um, and, and again, the idea was that this was a safety valve. The other thing that's important to point out in terms of this whole process is that when you examine the changes that took place in Puerto Rico in the post-World War II period and the government attempt to deal with you know, the, the crisis, social situation that existed, there was a three-prong effort. And one effort was promote the growth of jobs through industrialization. The second was, was, you know, stimulate the migration, even though officially they said they didn't do that. And the third was population control, 
because the government advocated a neo-Malthusian um, ideology that the root cause of the problems in Puerto Rico was that there were too many people for too few resources and that a solution was to control the fertility of women in Puerto Rico. Mind you, they didn't talk about controlling the fertility of men in Puerto Rico, right? So there was a very active program of sterilization, which again is the most severe form of population control because they might have done the rhythm or the pill or whatever. Uh, mostly it was women that already had uh, children, so it was, you know, and it was poor working class women, and they started a, um, you know, family planning centers and uh, they were promoting the idea that progress, economic progress for Puerto Rico and economic progress for families was dependent on having smaller families. So they portrayed uh, the ideal family as, you know, the husband, the wife, and, and, and two kids. And when women went to the hospital and had children, gave birth, there was pressure put on them to undergo the sterilization. And the, the idea was, well, you're here already, and uh, at a moment when the women were most vulnerable, having gone through, you know, just giving birth, they would s consent to this. But there was a pressure that was put on there. And um, that there was pressure put on them. Also, they were kind of misled in the sense that the conception that many women had was that the fallopian tubes were being tied. And somehow they had this conception that you can tie them and you can untie them, which is not true. You know, apparently there's a very small percentage that where it can be reversed. Then uh, the uh, health clinics, you know, rural health clinics would send out health workers and actually pay visits to people in, in their home. They also went to, to the factories and they got permission from the, the, the factory owners indicating to them that it was in their benefit to give them time during the workday for these family uh, planning workers to come in and talk to the women. Because apparently there's a law in Puerto Rico that the women had certain rights in terms of you know, maternity leave for a certain number of weeks after they gave birth. And in order not to interrupt the production process with women going off to, to give birth or whatever, they would talk and convince the factory owners to allow time during the workday for these kind of orientations. Uh, Puerto Rico was used as a site for a lot of experimentation in early forms of um, population control. And something that, that few people know is that about a third of women of childbearing age in Puerto Rico are sterilized. And uh, it used to be, the argument used to be that this was, you know, a genocide, that this was an abuse of violence against women, um, and part of this plan to, you know, control the population. But it's interesting because uh, nowadays a lot of women in Puerto Rico make the case that they're doing this of their own volition and that it's their preferred method of controlling uh, fertility. And uh, many women in Puerto Rico undergo uh, sterilization after they've had however many, however many, many children they want. For me, I first became aware of this tension that exists in terms of explaining why so many women are sterilized in Puerto Rico at a conference that I went to a few years ago and I took part in a workshop on demographics. And the person that was making the, um, the dis you know, that was leading the discussion, a Puerto Rican demographer, was talking about the dynamic of, um, you know, population growth in Puerto Rico and pointed out that fact about, you know, women being, you know, 30% of w women being sterile. And a lively discussion took place between one group of women that were arguing 
that this was an abuse of women, that this was genocide, that this was an imperialist, you know, ploy and all of this. And other women saying, no, 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 we're not, we're not victims of violence and genocide and, and you know, U.S. Machiavellian ploys and all that. Uh, we want to do this, you know. But in that post-World War II period, there were these three things were part and parcel of one program for ad addressing social problems in Puerto Rico. Stimulate migration, stimulate industrialization, and stimulate population control. The Dominican Republic, in terms of the process of that structural economic change that I spoke about in Puerto Rico and the phenomenon of migration, runs very parallel to what happened in Puerto Rico, except that it's happened something like 20 years later. And um, it's, it's very curious that in Puerto Rico, one of the things that facilitated the rapid industrialization on the basis of U.S. capital um, you know, investments was the fact that there was free trade between Puerto Rico and the United States. And whereas the Dominican Republic is a sovereign nation and there doesn't exist that same, you know, relationship in terms of trade, the U.S. was able to get around that and the local government in Puerto Rico was able to, uh, in the Dominican Republic was able to get around that via the promotion of the, you know, um, free trade zones. And what you've had in the Dominican Republic is very similar to what happened in Puerto Rico. And it's very ironic and, 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 and contradictory that precisely at the moment when the nation is undergoing a rapid process of modernization, industrialization, a growth of a middle class, uh, increased per capita income, uh, increased life expectancy, better housing conditions, is precisely the moment where you have massive record numbers of people leaving the country. And a lot of people say, well, what happened here? I thought we were progressing and doing, and doing so well. But again, it's that contradictory process that um, you know, you know, these structural economic changes, you know, there's a lot of benefits that accrue to the, you know, to, to the nation, but there's a lot of negative consequences that come as well, not the least of which is uh, issues around environmental degradation. But the, the, the growth of a large marginalized population uh, is, is one of the consequences. And then, of course, it's curious that of all the places potential migrants could have gone, they end up going to, they end up coming to the U.S. And, um, you know, that's uh, a result of the very close ties that the U.S. has with these nations in terms of, you know, the business ties, the political ties, the, the, the cultural ties, the, the, the networks of transportations that have been established, the, the social networks that have been established. In terms of Dominican history, uh, it was in the late 19th century and the early 20th century when the economy moved into a commercial agricultural economy and began to, and, and that process of a transition into a more commercially oriented economy did have an impact on the population to the extent that there was a process of land concentration and, and centralization and you began to get movement of people uh, in, in rural areas as a consequence of those structural changes. During the Trujillo years, which began in 1930, he also promoted a program of industrialization and that also had an impact on the population and population movement. However, he had a very um, strong policy against migration. And uh, it's been argued that there were two main reasons why he was opposed to the emigration of Dominicans abroad. And one of them had to do that he viewed uh, workers as people that 
the nation had made an investment in and that they didn't want to lose to the outside. The second reason that's been pointed out is that he was afraid of people going abroad and conspiring abroad against his government. So there was very little migration. It was very difficult for people in the Dominican Republic to be able to leave. That began to change after Trujillo. Trujillo was assassinated in 61. Uh, then you had the U.S. invasion in 65 after Juan Bosch is deposed and there's the civil war between those that wanted to put him back in power and those that were wanted to keep him out. The United States intervened and then the United States pretty much um, maneuvered to have Balaguer elected. Uh, Balaguer, of course, had been uh, you know, one of the key um, collaborators of, of Trujillo. But the United States was interested in promoting democratization, right? And Balaguer uh, is the one that, during his first 12 years in government, that promoted a much um, you know, more ambitious program of industrialization in partnership with U.S. capital. And in the mid-1960s, the earliest immigrants that begin to leave the Dominican Republic leave as, we, as a result of the social turmoil uh, and, and political turmoil that was happening. And both uh, the U.S. government and the Dominican government uh, acted together to make it possible for as many people they wanted to leave to leave. And it was a way of defusing a tense political situation. Subsequently, however, most Dominicans that have been coming, you know, from the late 60s on up, are coming for economic reasons. And they're coming as a result of the changes that have been taking place in the Dominican Republic. I have some numbers in general in terms of the, uh, in general, the Hispanic population in the United States. And I'll give you some numbers from the 2000 census, and then I'll give you some numbers from, you know, more recent estimates. In, in 2000, there were uh, about 8.8 .8 million people of Mexican uh, descent in the United States, and they were the, by far the largest Hispanic population. Uh, and then there were about close to 2 million from Central America. And they're coming mostly from um, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, Honduras. Um, in addition, there are, in, this was in 2000, nearly a million from Cuba, and about 700,000 from the Dominican Republic. Most of the Dominican Republic have come since the mid-1960s. In terms of the Puerto Rican presence, the Puerto Rican presence now is, um, well, in the, in the 2000 census, 3.4 million Puerto Ricans in the United States and 3.8 million in Puerto Rico. Since then, the number of Puerto Ricans in the United States exceeds the number of Puerto Ricans on, on the island. More recently, uh, the um, Federal Bureau of the Census numbers the Hispanic population in the United States in total at some 45 million. And um, of these, and, and in addition to this, there's about 3.9 million in Puerto Rico. Of these, the largest is still the uh, Mexican population, 64% of Hispanics in the United States, 64% of that 40, what would I say, 45 million are of Mexican origin. Another 9% of that 45 million are of Puerto Rican background. 3.4% are Cuban, 
3.1% Salvadorian and 2.8% Dominican. The remainder are uh, from various other Central American and South American countries. So that's just an idea of the uh, numbers.